All right, let's, it's 11.03, so we'll get started. Uh, I'm going to start by opening us in prayer, and then we'll jump into the text here. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you, and we thank you so much for bringing us here uh, to your house to worship, to be with one another, to fellowship and love on one another. And Heavenly Father, I pray that uh, you'll bring us all home safely today, that during this study we will thank your thoughts after you, and be made new. In Christ, name we pray. Amen. Okay. So. You know, as Micah said, and you all know, we're going to be talking about the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Uh, gosh, up through May, I guess. So it's going to be quite some time. We've got some, some breaks in there. Uh, today, I'm going to be covering Genesis 1 and 2. And I thought of... I thought a lot about how to talk about Genesis, especially chapters 1 through 2, because everything's it's so contentious. Everything surrounding Genesis 1 and 2 is very contentious. Um, if it's not one of the most, if it's not the most contested passage or, you know, passages in Scripture, it's got to be close. Um, the... Before I, before I get into talking about it, I'm going to do something Micah did, because I you know he said we would do this. I'm going to recommend some resources. The first thing I'm going to recommend, um, and you'll see this, this is going to be relevant for the talk today, but is this article. You can get this online, easy to access. If you just Google Gordon Winham, it's G-O-R-D-O-N-W-E-N-H-A-M, Sanctuary Symbolism in the Garden of Eden Story. It's a fascinating article. Um, and you'll see today why I think that. So another um, resource that I thought was really helpful was this book, Rethinking Genesis 1 through 11. It's again by Gordon Wenham. And um, this book, what I really like about it is he, he tries to uh, couch uh, our understanding of Genesis in its uh, ancient Near Eastern context. So basically... Um, he talks a lot about ancient Mesopotamian religions and um, the religions of the Babylonians, the Assyrians, and so on. And um, how very much alike some of their religious texts are to um, the early chapters of Genesis. You know, especially, I mean, even, even up through Abraham, but especially before that. So he's going to cover things like um, the Enuma Elish, <coughs> the Epic of Gilgamesh, um, let's see, the Atrahasis Epic, and some of these others that maybe you, you came across in school or something. Um, I think probably the Epic of Gilgamesh is the one that most people are familiar with. But he covers those. He t- points out a lot of the similarities they have. I mean, because um, you take, you know, Atrahasis, for example, in this epic, um, basically Atrahasis, he, he escapes a, a flood of global, you know, mythic proportions, um, uh, so to speak. And uh, he ends up landing on a mountain. And after he lands on the mountain, he exits the boat with his family. By the way, he took his, uh, his family on the boat, <coughs> along with uh, two of every kind of animal, right? So there were tons of parallels with uh, the, the flood narrative in Genesis. And when he lands on the mountain, he offers sacrifices to God, uh, to the gods. So um, this is basically what Wyndham does is he talks talks you through all of this and says like yeah there are lots of similarities but fundamentally the theology of all of these ancient world religions is far different from the theology of the christian faith and the ancient hebrews so it's a really good resource for that so again rethinking genesis 1 through 11 this is a good one 
Um, another good book. I had not made it all the way through this one. This is, I just, I don't know, maybe got this a week ago. G.K. Beale and uh, Mitchell Kim, God Dwells Among Us, Expanding Eden to the Ends of the Earth. This is a really good book on uh, basically the, the, the temple and tabernacle imagery found in Genesis. And then this book is an, an oldie but goodie. Uh, Vern Poitras says The Shadow of Christ and the Law of Moses. This is another fascinating work. that um, It's basically a work on the typology of uh, the foreshadowing of Christ in the Mosaic Law. So fascinating. It's a fascinating piece too. So that's enough about resources. I have a ton. If you, uh, I would, I could bore you all day with them. So if you, if you want some, email me. You know, email Micah, and we'll we'll get you set up with that. So um, I'm a little out of my wheelhouse. Um, I've never taught the Bible formally. My teaching experience is in philosophy and talking about things that are usually way more abstract than than uh, in, in some ways anyway, in, in a sense, than what we'll be talking about today. Um, but I'm going to give this a go and see what happens with it. So as I was saying, I've uh, I spent a lot of time thinking about, well, what in the world will I say about Genesis 1 and 2? Because um, there are all kinds of approaches when you start looking into it. And, you you know, uh, one approach that I'm not really going to take, um, it's a fine approach to take if you want to talk about Genesis. It's just not one I'm super interested in. And that is taking the, the first couple chapters of Genesis and... Uh, looking at this whole young earth, old earth, you know, creation debate and all this stuff. Um, it can be interesting. At the moment, I'm just not super interested in it. I've found myself drawn to some other things in the text that we'll, we'll talk about. But that's one way to do it. Um, you, you're almost certainly going to make someone angry no matter what you say. No matter where you land on that debate, someone's going to be upset with you. Um, so I do feel like it's a little safe to talk about the typology of Jesus Christ in Genesis. So that, that's where we're that's where we're gonna uh, that's where I'm gonna focus. I, I found myself much more interested in that. Um, I think the you know creation evolution, theistic evolution stuff is kind of well worn territory. There's all kinds of really great resources on both sides on it. So I don't really have much to say about it. Um, so the approach I'm gonna take is I guess you might say it's an exercise in some people will call biblical theology. And um, if you ask me to tell you what biblical theology is, I guess I'd say it's something like taking, and I mean, there are people in here who probably critique this, but just bear with me. This is sort of a rough and ready idea, but that is you take some theme or some motif that, that pops out of the text and you kind of trace this across the entire canon or see what the entire canon, the uh, corpus of God's written word, has to say about it. Um, so this, what we're going to do today in Genesis 1 and 2 is kind of an exercise in biblical theology, but it's going to have um, a focus on Christ. It's going to be Christocentric, and that we're going to be looking for images of Christ in the Old Testament, in, in these, these first two chapters of the Old Testament. So that's the approach. That's the, going to be the general method. Um, I'm going to avoid as best I can when we, you do a Bible study. I'm going to avoid um, standing up here and just reading the Bible to you, I think. But I think that's a great thing to have the Bible read to you. Um, I had someone do this for me years ago, uh, quite a few times. I'd come in, in in bad shape, and he'd sit me down and say, "Hey, you need to hear this," and he would just read Scripture to me. And it was it was edifying. But I'm not going to try to do that here. We're, we're, I'm going to 
I want to focus on uh, some of the ideas that pop out of the text, but of course we are going to be reading from the text some. So what I want to do is read Genesis 1, 1 through 10, uh, show you a slide here explaining kind of what's going on um, in the first two chapters of Genesis uh, with respect to creation and each day of creation. Uh, and then I want to start talking about this theme that, that I think pops out of the text and of, and that is that uh, when God's creating the world, he's creating a house. And not just any old house, uh, but a temple. A house uh, for him to dwell in. And not just dwelling by himself, but with his people. So uh, that's, that's my, my plan. So, um, you know, to let the cat out of the bag, so to speak, the, um, we'll see that Jesus Christ is ultimately the fulfillment of all of this um, new creation, uh, all of this creation imagery tabernacle and temple imagery that we see in the text. We, everyone following so far? I'm going to do that good teacher thing, check for understanding. Okay. Alright, so uh, let's read this. Genesis 1, 1 through 1-10. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. And let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. There was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let, let the waters under the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. So, um, what you, something that comes out of the text here is you, just in the first uh, ten verses of Genesis, is that God's going about this business of dividing and then later, as you go into Genesis 2, uh, I mean, some in, in Genesis 1, but especially as you get into Genesis 2, you see God filling up these spaces that he's divided. So um, he divides the light and the darkness on day one, and that corresponds to day four, where he, where he fills this space with the sun, moon, and stars. Um, day two, he separates or divides the waters above and the waters below. And he, uh, day five, which corresponds to day five, where he, he fills that space with the birds and the fish. Okay, Day three... He creates the dry land. He gathers all the, the water into one place. Uh, dry land appears. And then he fills the dry land with animals and ultimately man. Um, and interestingly, uh, <coughs> Wenham talks about this in that Rethinking Genesis uh, 1-11 book. But there, there is even here, even in this dividing and filling, there is a a connection, uh, a resemblance to some ancient Mesopotamian uh, creation myths. So uh, you should look that up on your own, but it's, it's, it's pretty interesting. And you can do an entire study on um, this, this, this Hebrew word to home. Uh, it's, a pro, it's often treated as a proper noun, but and darkness was over the face of the deep. Um, the deep is these primordial chaotic waters, right? So the waters before anything else was created, the, when God shows up on the scene, you almost get this picture that the earth was there. I'm, no, I'm certainly not saying there's not creation ex nihilo or something like that. I think God did create everything, and out of nothing, he just spoke into existence. But you get this picture that 
when God shows up to do create, uh, his creative work, there's just this giant globe, so to speak, with water and very deep and chaotic waters all over it, um, which there's a connection there, too, with, uh, with Christ and calming the storms and so on. We'll maybe get to that some other week. But anyway, <coughs> even here, you see that there are already connections and images to Christ. But um, okay, so uh, one thing I didn't include in this slide, but it's like the, the most important thing is days, on the seventh day, God rested, right? He Sabbath, okay? So that is sort of the, the, the point of creation. That's what all of God's creative work was moving toward, was this resting. Um, all right, so we get something like this picture of the earth uh, in Genesis 1 and 2, or the universe, I should say. You've got the waters under the earth, the dry ground, and then the waters above the earth. This is basically how the ancients viewed, uh, viewed the universe or the cosmos, okay? Um, so let's jump forward to Genesis 2, 7 through 17. And I'm going to read this, and then I'll be done reading from Genesis, and we'll get into some uh, creation and tabernacle imagery and stuff. Okay, Genesis 2, 7 through 17. And this is important just so you're acquainted with the text because I'm going to be saying some things that are, um, they're going to presuppose, I mean, which most people here are probably acquainted with the text, but this this way to hopefully be more toward the forefront of your consciousness. But um, 7 through 17. Then the Lord God formed the the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in the Eden in the east, and there he put man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delian and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. But the Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Work it and keep it is going to become important later. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of the tree of, uh, eat of, the, tree of the garden, eat of every tree of the garden, excuse me, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Okay. All right. So uh, we're acquainted with the text now. Um, what I want to do is I want to point something out. When you begin to look at the features of the universe as a whole, um, the dry land in particular in the garden, even more particularly, right? Just think about that. You, um, you begin to see some striking similarities to uh, the later tabernacle of Moses, which pops up, pops up in like Exodus 25 and through 40, basically. Um, and then, of course, uh, uh, moving further down the timeline than that, uh, past that, you have the, the Temple of Solomon, which you see spoken of in 1 Kings and 2 Chronicles and a number of other places. Lots of similarities between creation, the tabernacle, and the temple. So that's important. Um, so I put together this chart uh, for us to help guide us in, you know, kind of exploring some of these, these connections. Um, I think I've got like nine different similarities listed, but the thing is this is, 
I wouldn't even say this is scratching the surface of the similarities. This is like, just I'm way down the road, just pointing to a sign, like, or, you know, with a sign pointing, hey, there's a bunch of stuff down there. We are not even really up to it yet. I mean, there's so much when you begin to get into this typology of uh, creation, the garden, uh, the tabernacle, the temple, and ultimately Christ. There's so much of it there, tons of it. Um, people literally write dissertations on it. <laughs> so um, you know there's a lot there. Um, all right, so the first thing I want to uh, point out um, in the left column here, we've got creation of cosmos. And it really ought to say creation, and then it ought to say garden, probably. But, you know, whatever. Uh, <laughs> so this side, we're going to have elements that are in creation and in the garden in particular. And on the right-hand side, we've got some of the um, some features of the tabernacle and the temple. And I'm <clears throat> wanting to show you that just in, in these ways, um, they resemble one another. Creation looks forward to the tabernacle and temple, and of course they look back to creation. Um, so let's just get started. Uh, architectural language. So whenever, uh, in Genesis 1 and 2, I think what you have going on is you've got God building a house. Okay, I've already said that. And if you look elsewhere in Scripture, and I mean all kinds of places, I'm just going to read Job 38 here in a second. Um, but you see that the creation, uh, the world, is spoken of as a house. Okay, it's spoken of in these really architectural type terms, right? So, Job thirty-eight four through seven, God says to Job, "Where were you when I laid the foundation?" I'm underlining some of these words here of the earth. Tell me, if you have understanding, who determines its measurement? Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Just in this passage alone, you see there's all kinds of house building and architectural terms applied to the creation of the earth. Okay? Um, and we move, as we move further into this architectural idea, we see that um, this house that God's building has different rooms in it. Uh, three rooms, in fact which is interesting. I don't know that there's anything to this, but of course God is a trinity. Um, uh, that's interesting. Again, I don't know if there's anything to it, but you know, something for further study maybe. Um, and by the way, you can absolutely go way too crazy with uh, typology. So um, just so you know, I'm, I've, try, I've tried not to do that and ground most of what I'm saying in scripture um, and, and good reasons behind it. But you could totally go too crazy with it. But anyway, uh, but what we see in this house that God builds is that it's a three-room house. Okay, so let's just take the universe as a whole. You've got the waters under the earth, you've got the dry ground, and then you've got the waters above the earth, right? <coughs> it's a three-room or three-story house. Those are the main, the main areas in it. Um, and uh, take the dry land, for example. You've got uh, all the lands outside of the land of Eden, you have the land of Eden itself, and inside that, particularly to the east of the land of Eden, you have the garden, right? Again, a three-room house, okay? Um, the tabernacle and the temple are both split up into three main sections. Um, there were some, like, when you look at Solomon's temple, and, and I guess, you know, Herod, after he rebuilt it, it was only up for about 40 years, but um, but the uh, you there were some other storage rooms and stuff built off to the side that God did actually give instructions to build. But 
in terms of the main sort of like focus and worship in the liturgy, you had three main rooms even in the temple. So you've got um, in the tabernacle in the temple, you've got the courtyard, which um, the, the people could go there with their sacrifices, okay? You've got, in fact, let me do this, you all, I'm sorry. Here's a not so great picture, but it's okay. You get the idea. But you've got this courtyard area, which is all of this out here. You have the, uh, this tent here, which is comprised of two different rooms, the holy place and the most holy place, okay? Um, people could come, the common folks, so to speak, could come into the courtyard, um, basically hand over their, their sacrifice to the, the priest, and they would do the sacrifices out here on this, this four-horned altar. Um, ceremonial washing was done at the bronze laver here. Um, the priests would, would wash themselves and things like that before entering the holy place. And of course, the, whole, the holy of holies, the most holy place, uh, that was only entered once a year, and then by the uh, only by the high priest. So um, you've got this three-room house here in the tabernacle, the temple. Okay. Um, let's see. Let me pull this back up. So the next thing. Um, I'll talk about is uh, Exodus 19. So Israel comes to Mount Sinai. Of course, they get terrified, right? So they're because ultimately this is because they're they're sinful people. So um, they enter into God's presence at Mount Sinai and they beg God not to talk to them. Like, hey, don't talk to us, please. We'll do whatever you want. Just uh, instead uh, have Moses uh, talk to you, or you talk to Moses, and then he can he can mediate between us uh, and, and you. You know, and so of course God does this. And um, what's interesting, though, is Moses goes up on the mountain to, to meet with God. Um, you have three different levels here. You have the vast majority of the camp had to stay at the foot of the mountain. Um, Seventy elders and the priests traveled a little way up the mountain but had to stay there. But only Moses, who there's some symbolism here to you know, being a high priest, a mediator between God and man and so on. He goes all the way up the mountain. Whether or not he actually went to the very top, I don't know. But you get the idea. He went further up than everyone else. So, um, again, you have this, this mountain where I should point out that mountains are a place both in ancient Near Eastern culture and um, uh, the surrounding ancient Near Eastern culture because um, the, the Hebrew, ancient Hebrews lived in this culture. This was their culture, too, in many ways. But... Um, Mountains were sacred places. They were places where the gods, the deities dwelt. Um, you know, and you, I've heard people speculate as to why they might, you know, why would they even think this? Some people say, well, if you understand anything at all about, I'm just realizing it's 1126. We're not going to get through all of this at all. I'm sorry. But if you understand anything at all about Middle Eastern geography, what you know is that usually the, desert, the deserts are dry, low places. And mountains are where you find sort of, you know, lush, uh, watery, you know, green existence, you know, where, where life flourishes. Um, and so, of course, that would be the kind of place where the deities would live. But anyway, I don't know about all that, but uh, I mean, it makes some sense. But either way, um, in the broader ancient Near Eastern culture, you find gods meeting people on mountains or people worshiping God on mountains. You see the same thing in Scripture. I mean, uh, you have this at Mount Sinai. Um, what is it? Uh, Amos 4.13 says that God, I'm paraphrasing, but basically he walks among the high places of the earth, talking about hills and mountains. So, um, so 
This leads into the second thing. Um, the garden was likely in a high place, and we know the temple was in a high place because it was built um, on the Temple Mount, right? So um, the garden was in a high place. Uh, there's a prophecy against the Prince of Tyre in Ezekiel 28. It's a pretty contested passage. People are not exactly sure um, what Ezekiel's up to, um, what all he's really trying to say. But he does talk about this Adam-like figure who was overcome by sin and is cast out of the garden of God. And he actually refers to it as Eden. Um, it seems pretty obvious to me there are definitely some images of Adam there. Um, and he, but he describes that garden as being on a mountain. Okay, So um, the garden, if Ezekiel is in talking about the garden of Eden, I think he is, um, there's, there's some reason to believe from Scripture that, that the garden was on a mountain or at least a high place. And you have the same, uh, another reason to believe this, just um, in Genesis 2 when it talks about the rivers, I mentioned all the, the four rivers, so the water flows out of the land of Eden into the garden and rivers flow out of the garden. Well, um, probably if rivers are flowing out of it, it's an elevated kind of place. Um, so there's some reason there to think the garden was probably in a high place. Again, that's significant because God meets people on mountains. Not always, but he definitely will, and he definitely made um, some type of pattern uh, of this in the Old Testament. So this is pretty cool. Um, The garden's entrance is in the east, okay? And the entrance to the temple and tabernacle are always in the eastern wall, okay? So um, (coughs) here's another view um, of the, uh, the tabernacle. But you have this, this eastern wall. It says the east gate. That's the entrance. Um, and But just to talk about the, uh, the garden for a minute. Why I think that the garden's entrance is in the east? Well, uh, it's because when Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden, they're cast out to the east, right? Um, and a, uh, the cherubim, so I guess a few uh, cherubs, I guess is what you say, uh, cherubim, but uh, multiple um, uh, Angels are placed at the the entrance to the garden uh, with a flaming sword, along with a flaming sword, to block access to the tree of life. Okay, of course, we know the tree of life is ultimately Christ, but we'll get we'll get there. But um, again, they're cast out to the east. They sin. They're cast out to the east. Okay, um, in order to enter God's presence, that means you have to travel west. Didn't Michael W. Smith have a song like, Go West, young man? He he was an astute theologian. Um, (laughs) But, but, um, but yeah, so the the garden's entrance is in the east. Well, the the tabernacle and the temple's entrance is in the east. And if you think about the progression of worship here, like, look at this. So they come into the the east gate. Um, Their offering is handed off to uh, the, uh, uh, the priests, the priests who their sacrificial business, so to speak, and um, represent the people, and then they continue westward, right? Uh, ultimately into the presence of God. So this westward movement is moving you closer and closer to God's presence. Um, let me... Uh, let me situate here with this paper. So, oh yeah, some other things related to this. So Adam and Eve, they sin, they're cast out of the, the garden to the east, okay? Cain kills Abel. He's excommunicated or kicked out of the land. Where does he go? He's forced to wander in the land of Nod. Where is Nod? It's east of Eden. And we know that because uh, Genesis 4, 16 tells us that. He's forced to wander in the land of Nod, which is to the east. Move forward a little bit further. 
um, Abraham and Lot. Uh, their herdsmen get into some dispute about, you know, um, whose flocks get to eat where and all of this, right? Well, Abraham's like, hey, you know, we're kinsmen. Let's not fight about all this. Uh, so uh, he's like, look at all this. The, all the land is before us. Go wherever you want to go. And Lot says, I'll do that. And so he, he leaves Abraham, which is interesting because Abraham is God's chosen one at this point. Um, don't take that too far, but you get the idea. Um, God's promise was especially made to him. And uh, he leaves that person, though. And where does he go? He goes east. And where does he end up? He ends up in Sodom, a wicked place that's ultimately destroyed by God. So you, you constantly you are seeing these images of people going east, further away from God's presence. But when they move westward, they end up uh, back in God's presence and having an encounter. Check this out. This is neat. So we go so far as everyone following. This stuff excites me. Um, if you can't tell, I like um, it, it's. I hope, if nothing else, like it, this. Help, this will oh, help 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 you see that the scriptures can really be exegeted, opened up, and there's so much there. Um, so, I was reading Exodus the other day, and of course, you know, I was already primed. So maybe there's some confirmation bias here. I don't know, but. Uh, to see this east-west imagery and stuff in there in God's presence. But listen to this. Exodus 3.1. Now Moses was keeping the flock uh, of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in, uh, in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. Have you ever heard the story of you know, Moses and the burning bush? Well, this is interesting. He's out in the wilderness he moves westward, right? And there, there's also some imagery there being in the wilderness, scapegoats, this is where they went. It's also associated with Sheol, bad place, right? Um, but he moves westward. He comes to a mountain after moving westward and has an encounter with God. It's just interesting. You're seeing more and more of this east-west thing. Um, okay, so, um, oh yeah, here are a couple other little things besides... Fast forward past uh, um, uh, Lot uh, and Abraham and just take the nation of Israel. Well, guess what? They end up um, disobedient, idolaters. And what happens to them? They're cast out of the land, right? And where are they taken? They're taken by the Babylonians and the Assyrian boats, both at different times. And they're taken to the east. That's where they're held captive is in the east. In order to come back into God's presence where they should be, they have to move west. If you look at their... The path they take out of Egypt. What you see is that they're they're wandering in the wilderness. Of course, they're bickering and complaining and disobedient. They're idolaters there too. Instead, of, but there were. If you look at a map, you could see that they, they could have literally just gone basically north up to the the uh, the land of Canaan, the Promised Land, and entered it. But they couldn't. Instead, they had to go uh, around Mount. Oh. I can't remember which mountain, but they had to go around a mountain range and enter the land um, from the east, so moving westward. So anyway, just something else that's kind of interesting. Um, All right, I'm going to stop harping on that. Um, But again, there's some connection there between creation and then the tabernacle um, and the temple because uh, moving, moving west, again, being cast out of the garden is being cast out of God's presence. I guess I should say that and make it explicitly clear. Okay, so being cast out of the garden is being cast out of God's presence. 
Um, so you want to move westward and move back into God's presence. I'm not advocating moving to California. Not at all. <laughs> just, so, just so you know. Uh, um, I'm not against it either for those of you who love California. I'm just not advocating for it. But, um, all right. So, um, so cherubim guard the garden. We've already briefly mentioned that. Um, and then they also guard the holy place, the most holy place in the tabernacle. How do they do this? Well, or how is this reality um, Discuss well, uh, and how how was it? How was it? This reality um, of God, access to God, being guarded by His angels. How was that uh, communicated to the ancient Hebrews? It was communicated in the curtains of the temple, because you have these angels um, sewn into the curtains that separate the holy place from the most holy place. And there are also other uh, uh, sewn into other uh, curtains, but um, that's how. So. Um, You've got cherubim guarding the garden, which is access to God, and you've got cherubim guarding the, the holy place and most holy place as well. Okay, so we're good on that. Makes sense? Um, so there's a connection there. Uh, and so trees and flowers and plants and stuff, obviously those are present in the garden. We know that from the text that we read earlier. And um, you see this same thing in the tabernacle and in the temple. So I will read here First uh, Kings 6. Uh, 1 Kings 6, 14 through 15, and then 18 to 22. So, you know, kind of skipping around here. But So Solomon built the house and finished it. He lined the walls of the house on the inside with, uh, with boards of cedar. From the floor of the house to the walls of the ceiling, he covered them on the inside with wood. And he, So cedar, wood, trees, think about that, right? Um, uh, he, covered, uh, he covered them on the inside with wood, and he covered the floor of the house with boards of cypress. The cedar within the house was carved in the form of gourds and open flowers, and he overlaid the whole house with gold. Um, you know, a lot of people have pointed out that, you know, gold has some type of association with deity. Um, and, I mean, you see a little bit of this when you see the New Jerusalem uh, spoken of in Revelation, and there are streets of gold and so on. Um, and of course, royalty back in the day, uh, they they wore lots of gold and, um, at, when they could. And um, uh, the royalty, the kings, were also usually thought of as divine, like the a, like a son of God, somehow related to the gods. Um, so there is there is this connection here with uh, divinity and gold. And um, in this case, we're talking about the trees and plants and so on. And trees and plants they represent life. Deities um, again are said to live around trees and plants on the lush places of mountain, or in the lush places of mountains and so on. Um, so there, there's more that could be said about that, but it's 11:38, so we won't say more about that. Um, so food is present in the garden, um, and the in the tabernacle and the temple, you also have food present. In at least two forms, you have it present in the, the the bread of the presence, which sits on this golden table. If you were walking into it, it would be to your right. Um, there are twelve loaves there, and um, probably wine with it. But um, I, I can't defend that strictly from scripture. So uh, um, I think some people have tried to make the case for that. I don't. I don't know how to make that case, so I'm not going to say that. But, but at least rabbinic tradition suggests that there was also wine present with, with the bread. Um, but also, there's another bit of food present, and that is in the, uh, in the Ark of the Covenant, which sat in the Holy of Holies. There's a jar with manna in it. Um, so, uh, again, there's food present in the garden. Um, 
and that given to Adam and Eve, and then there's, there's also uh, food present in the tabernacle and in the temple. Again, all of this is supposed to be conjuring up images of a sanctuary, right? That's, that's the idea, that creation, um, in particular the garden, was a sanctuary. It was a house that God built so that he could live, like dwell with his people. Um, and we, I th- one of the things I think that often gets overlooked is we, we, when we think about God dwelling with his people, we think about the tabernacle and the temple and so on, and we think about them serving him. And that's true. There is some sense in which you could say they serve God. But if you take all of this stuff back to the garden, what you find is that actually... Um, God's serving us. So the, 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 in serving God in the tabernacle and the temple, He's doing things for them. He's forgiving their sins. He's feeding them. He's giving them life, essentially. Um, and this is what He did in the garden. He put us in the garden. He gave us food. He gave us access to the tree of life. He served us. So God's entire plan isn't, in some sense, so much about us serving Him as much as it is about Him serving us. Um, this is a radical reversal, by the way. This is why some people will say, look, uh, Genesis is an apologetic. It's a defense against the ancient uh, Mesopotamian religions. Um, that's also a debated point. But some scholars have said that this is what the text is doing. That's what it's ultimately about. This is why we really shouldn't, according to them, we shouldn't really be talking about it in terms of the deliverances of you know, modern science or something. But it's an apologetic against these other religions that see uh, man's existence uh, as one that is just toilsome work, you know. Um, but instead, it's really, it's rest. And rest in God's presence where he serves and nourishes us so with his good gifts, um, which is also forward-looking to church. This is why we come here and we eat, right? Anyway, um, in fellowship with one another. So... Um, you've got Adam doing the work of a priest. So there's a priest uh, in the garden, right? Uh, Adam is a representative head of humanity. Paul talks about this. The one man's sin brought death into the world. Well, Jesus Christ was righteous, and uh, through his death, uh, life essentially comes to all men. I'm paraphrasing, but you get the idea, and I'm doing this for the sake of time. Um, so um, the whole purpose, what is, what's the point of talking about all of this? Well, I've said it a couple times, I'll say it one last time, then I'll just read a few passages about how Christ is the the true temple of God. But uh, the point of all this is that God wants to dwell with his people in order to serve them. Uh, And after the fall, we see that he goes uh, goes to great gracious lengths to do this. He looks over man's sin, he continually forgives man's sin, um, and sends his son into the world to be killed by men. And he does this because he wants to dwell with us um, and again, serve us and provide us life, and eternal life at that. Um, that's, that's, that's the purpose of looking at all this. He's bringing us back to the garden, uh, except it's going to be a better garden. Um, anyway, so is it clear so far? Clear as mud? I don't know. But, all right. Um, so let's go to the Gospel of John. Um, that's a little inside picture. We didn't even talk about the lampstand and stuff there's some cool stuff there. So, uh, all right. So Jesus, when he shows up on the scene, is bringing about a new creation. Um, I think you get this idea in the Gospel of John very clearly. Um, uh, when you know, He says, NRK, in the beginning, 
um, was the word, and the word was with God, and so on. So let me read this passage from uh, Peter Lightheart. Uh, this is in his book, The Four. It's just a survey of the Gospels. An excellent book. Uh, highly recommend it. Um, but he says this. He says, the entire book, and he's meaning the Gospel of John, can be understood as a stroll through the tabernacle. The opening chapter, which introduces the Lamb of God, who comes to take away the sins of the world, brings us to the bronze altar of sacrifice. So the lamb sacrificed on the altar. Chapters 2 through 4, with their focus on water, are at the laver. Chapters 4 through 7 center on the feeding of the 5,000, in which Jesus distributes the bread of the presence for the golden table. In chapter 8 through 13, and by the way, I'll just point out that in, in this, I believe it's John 6, he identifies himself as the bread of life. He says, I am the bread of life. Um, uh, and again, the priests, when they're eating this bread in, the, in, in the, the tabernacle and temple, it's like the people eating it. God's nourishing the people because they are the representative heads of the people of Israel. So it's not like God's just feeding a special group. He's feeding everyone, all of his people. So anyway, um, in chapter 8 through 13, chapters 8 through 13, John lingers at the lampstand, musing on Jesus as the light. In the upper room discourse, especially chapter 17, this is where Jesus is praying in the garden, displays Jesus as an intercessory priest, raising his hands before the golden altar. The golden altar would be this golden altar of incense that's at, um, outside the uh, curtain of the holy place, most holy place. John is at pains to show us that the empty tomb is the new holy of holies. The slab on which Jesus' body no longer lays is flanked by angels like the ark, and Peter, like a high priest, is the first to enter. Um, so, real quick, here just here are some places where you see all of this creation. Because again, think about this. It's almost like a transitive relationship. You have you've got creations connected to the tabernacle, and the tabernacle connected to Jesus. Ultimately, the creation is connected to Jesus. Something like that. Um, so uh, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. The Greek word there, I forget what it is now, um, but uh, that uh, and dwelt among us means he me could be translated as he pitched a tent or he tabernacled among us. Most people have heard this, but it's worth saying. In doing so, he reveals God's glory. Um, the glory of God in Exodus 40 comes and rests in the most holy place. Okay, um, Jesus is the Lamb of God. Jesus identifies in, uh, his body with the temple. Just look some of these references up because we don't have time to look at them now. I wish we did and I wanted to. But um, And here's one that I think is super fascinating. I'll shut up after this. Jesus heals many of the diseases. For example, look at like uh, John 5 and I think John 9. Yeah. Um, that would disqualify someone from being a priest. Check out Leviticus 21. Um, and this makes sense if he's restoring humanity and making priests of all people. So um, Jesus it, it comes onto the scene, uh, bringing a new creation. And Paul tells us as much, because, uh, and I think it's what 2 Corinthians 5, where he says that if anyone, he's talking about the message of reconciliation. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. So anyway, that's it. <laughs> Anyone have any questions or anything? Okay, cool. Well, thanks. Appreciate it.